Hi friends and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. The project is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today we're concluding our two studies in Genesis chapter 4 that looks like this incredibly troubling story of the rape of Dinah and the follow-up and consequences of that. A quick reminder if you're joining us for the first time that I always put a transcript in uh, the episode notes section of any audio version of the podcast which is hosted on the Buzzsprout website. Now it doesn't matter where you're receiving your podcast from, if you've subscribed on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, within there there should be a link to the episode notes. If you happen to be watching the video version, then just there'll also be a link there to the, uh, the audio version where you'll find those notes. They're there for you to use in whatever way you want to recap what I've talked about or perhaps use them to create your own resources. They're in the public domain. Take with them with my blessing and do what you will. But anyway, that's it for now. I will drop straight into the text and I'll see you again at the end just to give you a bit more of an update. So hi there, we're back into the main text of Genesis 34 and we've been looking at the situation where as a result of Dinah's rape, that's Jacob's only daughter, by the son of the leader of the Shechemites, they have now supposedly reached this agreement whether they will allow the families to incremental, providing the Shechemites get circumcised. And they, the thinking is, well, if we do this and we do it, deal with it in this way, then we can all live happily ever after. So is that a possibility, do you think? Is that really how things are going to work out? I don't think that's likely to happen, not for a second. So what are they up to? Well, if you remember, we found out last time that this whole plan was a deception on the park of Jacob's sons, particularly Simeon and Levi. I hate to be so blunt, but can you imagine the effect on all the men in a town of them all being circumcised at the same time? I'll say it as plainly as I can. They weren't, certainly wouldn't be in any shape to be a fighting force. Imagine it would be a bit like circumcising a rugby team or a football team and then expecting them to play a match the next day. So let's just pick up the text where we left off last time in 34, beginning again at verse 25. It says, Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Now I would point out that that would be their families, their individual tribes and the, the men along with them, not just the two individuals. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city had been defiled. So the rest of the brothers follow up and do the looting. So the men of Shechem, they're still in pain. They're disabled, to, to put it mildly. Can you imagine post-surgery 24 hours later in those days? I'm sure even a significant number of them might have been carrying infections or bad reactions to the surgery. And these two sons of Jacob lead the attack on the city and they kill all the men. 
then tells us the other brothers then follow up and they seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the house. Now, I believe the text says that only two of the sons committed the massacre, but the rest of the sons certainly join in on the plunder later. And all that was left in the city after Levi and Simeon had been there were their surviving wives and, and children, and they're taken captive and they actually plunder the whole city. They've killed all the men, and now the brothers take the women and the children, probably making them slaves or, at best, servants. The point is here, they've taken everything. They've taken the animals, they've taken all the material things out of the house. They've picked this place clean. This was an absolute right. Let's just close off the final verses in this chapter. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, that's the sons, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Now, one of the things we see here is we get a real insight into Jacob. However, before going any further, I think I need to remind you of how troubling it can be to approach on a chapter like this and approach it just in isolation. This is one of the dangers when people approach a Bible verse, section or chapter and study it in isolation. It's very important that when you do it, you place it in the context. If you study and look at what's going on here without remembering and putting these events depicted within this story, within the context of the entire book of Genesis, you are potentially going to run into trouble. It's always tempting to approach an individual text or an individual chapter in the Bible and try and pull something positive out of it. But that's not always possible because sometimes a story or even an entire chapter in this part is entirely negative. And it's entirely negative. It's a negative part of a narrative contained within a larger story. So we've got to take it at face value. And that's what's going on here. These vents are negative and they're just recorded for us. It does not mean in any way that God approves of what has gone on here. If we approach this chapter in isolation and fail to place it within the context and meaning of the entire book of Genesis, then we are in great danger of reaching the wrong conclusions. So let's approach it cautiously and deal face on with the problems this horrible story highlights regarding both the character flaws of Jacob and the sinful acts of his sons. He finds out what his sons have done, yes, and he's troubled, but do you notice he's troubled because the effect on his reputation and the possible future hostility from the other Canaanite tribes living in the region? His daughter got raped and that didn't seem to bother him that much, did it? Yet he finds out his sons have done this, this massacre and he's greatly distressed, but not necessarily at the massacre itself, but at the possible consequences that might flow out of it. He did not get upset, perhaps which he should have, because of their abuse of the circumcision ritual. This was a sacred rite and they had used it and abused it to try and gain advantage over their enemies. 
Allowing these unrepentant pagans to get circumcised is a clear case of abusing the God-given right, and in a sense they are breaking the covenant that God had made with them. So this was a great, great disobedience to God. All of this, what bothers Jacob, when you look at it, what bothers him, you'll see he constantly in his closing verses refers to himself and how these events affect him. It appears to me he's mainly concerned about himself, less concerned about his sons. At least they did feel that action was needed and that, they, as they said, they felt their daughter had been treated as a prostitute and they felt that there should have been a response. Simeon and Levi, they were concerned about this sister. They're the ones who say, aren't you concerned about your daughter, our sister? And the answer is, if we're truthful, not really, or certainly not nearly enough. All right, we've reached the end of the actual narrative of the story, and uh, we've unpicked the story verse by verse. So the question we have to ask is, what does it teach us today? How do we apply what's referenced here for us when we get up on a Monday morning. The point of this story is that when the sisters were violated, her brothers deceived the family involved and killed all the men in the city and plundered the property of that city. So what's the point in that? Is there anything we can learn from this? It seems entirely pessimistic. Well, to really understand that, as I said, you've got to understand some of the things that are going on in the book of Genesis. So let me make a couple of observations. I think when people approach the Bible today, they often want to hear something about themselves and draw something out of it that they can practically apply. Well, that's illegitimate, except sometimes when we meet the Bible at own terms, its purpose is to teach us about God and not necessarily about us. Eventually, it'll get round to something that we can that we can pull out of it that will help meet our needs. But primarily, some narratives are there to teach us about the Lord or to stand in contrast to the Lord and His way of approaching things. And I suspect that that is the case here. So, what's the point of the story? What is the point of this sad, sordid story? So what's the point of the story? What is the point of this sad, sordid story? Well, firstly, at no point does it show approval of what the sons of Jacob did here. Just think for a moment about the contrast between this story and the other stories we've heard in the book of Genesis so far. For example, Abraham was seen to deal honorably with the Hittites when he sojourned in their land. Isaac behaved peacefully with the Philistines when he passed through their strange land. But now Jacob and his sons have become aggressors in a conflict with the local Shechemites. Simeon and Levi's unrepentant treachery stands in dark contrast to Esau and Jacob's recent moral developments and also the more balanced way in which previous issues with local people have been dealt with by the forefathers. In contrast to previous incidents throughout Genesis, this chapter, notice, it contains no prayer, it contains no going before God to seek his will in the situation, 
no divine revelation is seen, no promise of blessing, and in fact, no explicit mention of God at all in this chapter. Most Bible experts believe that the thing that should jump off this page when you look at it is the stark contrast of how different it is in tone to all the other chapters, both before it and after it. When faced with potential conflict with other families, tribes and nations, even prior to this, the people of God have been seen to deal honestly and honourably with other people. And you come to this story and it's the exact opposite. The story is obviously not recorded in a way that suggests the Lord approves of any of what has gone on here. So that's an important observation and take that and hold it. The second observation I would like to make is that when studied within the context of the whole book of Genesis, this episode explains why later Jacob will pass over Simeon and Levi when he gives a special blessing to his family. That's something that happens in the future. When you come to the story, having read everything else before it, you'll see the stark contrast to the other stories. But as we go deeper into the book, it is going to become more obvious that this story has had a profound effect, particularly on the two men who instigated the attack and initiated the plunder. It's not overly evident here just yet, but trust me, there is a deeply significant moment for these individuals coming in the book of Genesis. I haven't got time to go into it in great detail now, but we'll get there when we move into a few chapters later in this book. But let me just say that this story and its repercussions have an enormous impact as we continue the study and the narrative through the whole book. This is a very significant event in setting the scene for what will come later. So again, it's all about holding the story within the context of the wider book. I've been saying that a lot recently, I feel, as we've been working through Genesis, because it's one of the keys to interpreting this book and indeed interpreting the entire Bible. Context, context, context. It's vitally important. And it remains important throughout the whole Bible, not just as we approach the single book of Genesis. In fact, it becomes absolutely vital when we later reach books of Judges, which we'll be coming to later. If you don't hold these stories within the context of the narrative or the main message of the Bible, you'll never be able to draw out the points that are being made. So let me just summarise and say this much. The story here, the main headline is, as a result of sin, Jacob passed over some of his brothers when it comes to giving out the blessing. That's the bottom line of what this will mean in the greatness and fullness of time. The blessing will be given to Judah instead of these two brothers. So these events have a profound ramification for them, but also we shall discover, and it will unravel further, for the whole nation of Israel. Another observation, a third observation, this story shows the importance of keeping the Israelites, the chosen people, separate from other people. And on this occasion, it was the Canaanites. I pointed out I was, as I was going through the story that God did not want the Israelites to intermarry with the Canaanites. And that is what is being proposed in this chapter. And that is what was not supposed to ever happen. 
it was okay for people to embrace the faith of the nation of Israel and, and be circumcised and drawn in. But that's not what was going on here. Had they intermarried and done this in the way it's described and plotted by these brothers, Israel would have been swallowed up by the Canaanites. It was necessary for the nation of Israel to remain pure and they were not going to be allowed to marry with people from other nations and other countries. And the use of the name of the nation as Israel used here for the first time of the nation indicates that the writer of this account, who is Moses of course, had a significant understanding and recognition of the deeper values and the implications of the event that he was recording here. Later in the Mosaic Law, it will be made clear that Israel was not ever allowed to play the harlot with the Canaanites as it's described in other books. They must never defile themselves with pagans by intermarriage or by making covenant treaties with such people. In fact, one of the things that's going on here is if they didn't marry the locals, then that would mean that contamination of the children of Israel would not happen. They had to remain pure because remember, it is through this nation that the Messiah is going to come. That's a big point. But the other big point, some would say the biggest point here, is that although the narrative is difficult, dark, and the circumstances are challenging, negative destruction, it still demonstrates the sovereignty of God in all situations. God sometimes, because of human sin, has to use the most unimaginable things to accomplish his purposes. So he does not approve of all of this, and yet there is a sense in which the sovereignty of God is still used, that these circumstances are still used to fulfill his purposes. Someone writing in this once said, whilst the story in this chapter operates on a level of family honour and the brother's concern for their ravaged sister, the story nonetheless also carries along the theme that runs so clearly through Jacob's narrative namely that God works through and often in spite of limited self-serving plans of human beings. The writer's purpose is not to improve these human plans and schemes, but to show how God and his sovereign grace will achieve his purpose through them. It's an old quotation, but I thought it was particularly uh, insightful, a really helpful observation that God will never be limited by our self-serving, even our pernicious and ill-motivated plans. He works in spite of them. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, even his wrath can praise him. God uses everything. He will use it all. So he is even able to use this sin, this sinful situation to accomplish his greater purpose, to work it for good. Very importantly, individually, the sinners will still pay dearly for their failures, but in terms of the nation and in terms of the ultimate plan of God, his will will be accomplished. His purposes will be fulfilled. One final observation. Another message I believe embedded in this passage concerns what should be the right response for people when they're confronted by evil, in other words, how to live in a wicked world. Here the wickedness was upon the Israelites who are living among the Canaanites, who are described elsewhere as an incredibly wicked people. And what we have here is an example of how Jacob responds to that wickedness. 
And it seems to me that one of the practical lessons we can take from the story is we can notice that both protagonists, Jacob and his sons, their response is one of two extremes. Jacob was indifferent and indecisive. He was passive. He didn't do anything. On the other hand, his sons sought justice, but they were ruthless and they were excessive. So here are the two extremes when responding to evil that is visited upon us. One is just to remain passive, indifferent, insensitive and do nothing. That is wrong, friends. But the other extreme is equally wrong. The sons here, the two especially, go to all kinds of excesses to right the wrong. The right response, it seems to me, must lie somewhere between these two extremes. For example, we should seek justice when appropriate, of course, but at the same time, we should not be excessive in executing that justice. There are two things going on here at the same time, and I think we need to unscramble them. At no point in their excessive use of justice was there any opportunity for restoration to happen. We do need to recognise that Jacob, fundamentally, at the end of the day, should have protected his daughter. He knew he was living amongst an evil people, but yet when things went wrong, he was too passive. And the point I want to make for us today is we must also go to neither of these two extremes. Don't be passive, but don't be too over-aggressive. Rather, try and find and do what is honourable, honest, and deal with the situation like God would do, trying to find a middle ground where we can express truth and justice, but allow the opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. So let me conclude by quoting what I think was said well. I find this in the internet. Attempting to destroy or punish evil through lawlessness or unrighteous acts should not be confused with righteous indignation. Rather, the righteous must seek justice and oppose evil in a manner that brings honour to the Lord and his covenant. So the right response to evil, friends, is to try and figure out a response that honours the Lord and does what is right and seeks justice all at the same time. In other words, try and deal with the situation the same way as the Lord would do. Okay, friends, that's it for today. I hope you find that helpful. We'll be launching off tomorrow, and I hope you'll join us in a new chapter, chapter 35. I'd like to remind you that within the episode notes of either the audio or video, there should be links there to all the various ways you can connect to my ministry, not just the Facebook page and the uh, YouTube channel, but the actual uh, podcast website itself on Buzzsprout, along with my Patreon uh, account. If you feel that you value this ministry and would like to support it the way in which you can connect there, and through that you'll get access to lots of other resources that I only make exclusively available to my patrons. By becoming a patron, or even just by sharing or liking or reviewing uh, this podcast, you are enabling it to be more widely seen, and you are also enabling it Uh, I trust to remain on the internet indefinitely and to allow this resource to be free, to allow 
many, many more people from the thousands who already have made the decision to not only make the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives, but to make the understanding and the exposition of it part of their daily lives over this uh, journey together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But that's it for today. I hope you've uh, found it helpful. In this, it's been a very challenging chapter, hasn't it? And let's get back together and jump into the Word of God together very soon. For me, it'll be tomorrow for you whenever I see you. But that's it for today. Bye for now.